Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, my name is Nathan Barzi. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ the King uh, Presbyterian Church in Cambridge. Uh, we're thankful that you're here. I uh, want to welcome you uh, here into the church. Um, if you're visiting with us tonight, I uh, want to let you know that you are all uh, very welcome and invited to come worship with us uh, anytime uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, every Sunday. Um, if you have any questions about the church, I'd be happy to answer any of those. One question that I will answer, very important, uh, right off the bat, um, is that the bathrooms uh, are out that door, where it says restrooms, um, out there to your, uh, that's your left. Um, okay, so uh, tonight uh, we're here uh, to talk about the doctrine of creation. Um, the first chapter of Genesis, we read that God said, let there be light. Um, sadly, in the last century at least, the debates uh, about creation have tended to generate a lot more heat uh, than light. Um, most of them have taken place in a context in which there's been assumed uh, a conflict uh, between uh, faith uh, and science, and a context in which both uh, faith and science are assumed to be nothing more than explanations for um, how things all got here, how it all got going. You know, so it's either creation or the Big Bang. Um, it's either evolution or intelligent design, uh, something like that. And, you know, most of this debate, you know, it takes as its main focus this question of, you know, whether or not God exists. Um, but it doesn't really go beyond that. It doesn't really go beyond that to questions of what it would mean uh, if there is a God, what it would mean uh, if everything that we see around us is his creation. Um, whether the creation itself means anything at all and what it means. And so most of this debate has the effect primarily of dividing us up into tribes. It's very good at that. Um, but doesn't go very far in having a meaningful impact on how we live our lives, uh, on uh, ethical choices uh, that, we, that we have to make. Um, and so it serves mostly as a, a, a barrier uh, to faith. Uh, for people, uh, an obstacle, or for uh, people who are uh, people of faith, uh, but also committed uh, to careers uh, in, in study or working in science, um, it leads to a sort of a bifurcation in their own lives. You know, how do we, how do we get these things together? You know, and all this um, because um, the focus is entirely on uh, origins. One of the things that we're here to consider tonight is uh, whether the doctrine of creation is about more than just origins, about whether it's uh, really not just about origins, but about the nature of things, uh, the purpose of things, what it means that there's anything rather than uh, nothing. Um, it's tempting to say that in the modern world, um, we just don't really worry about answers to those questions. It's tempting to say that uh, modern science just doesn't offer uh, answers to questions about, about nature and purpose. Um, but what we're going to consider tonight is in part the question of whether that's right, uh, whether it might in fact be the case that um, deeply embedded in our culture uh, and in our ways of thinking about the world and, and living in it uh, because of uh, misunderstandings about creation and what it means, um, there might actually be um, some answers that we've all assumed and taken for granted about what things mean 
their nature, uh, their purpose, um, in some ways that are uh, unhealthy um, and harmful. Um, our guest speaker tonight, Simon Oliver, um, a lot of his project, a lot of what he works on is precisely recovering uh, the doctrine of creation, uh, certainly for the church, but also for the wider culture uh, in which we live. Um, he brings the gifts of a philosopher and a theologian uh, to explain um, what this doctrine is, but he also delves into the resources of history and is very conversant uh, with the modern scientific literature um, to help understand how developments that took place in both th theology and science um, in the 17th and 18th centuries have brought us uh, to where we are today. Um, let me just tell you a little bit more about Simon. Uh, Simon is the Van Mildert Professor of Divinity at Durham University. He's also a resident canon theologian of Durham Cathedral. He was ordained as a priest in the Church of England in 1999. Prior to joining the faculty at Durham University, uh, Simon was chair of the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Nottingham. Uh, before that, chaplain at Hertford College in Oxford. He is the author of Philosophy, God, and Motion. He is the co-editor with John Milbank of the Radical Orthodoxy Reader. And most recently, uh, he's the author of Creation, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, which is exactly what it says. Um, in 2017, just last year, he delivered the Stanton Lectures, which are an endowed set of lectures at Cambridge University entitled Creation's Ends, Teleology, Ethics, and the Natural. Uh, his research focuses on Christian theology and metaphysics, particularly the doctrine of creation. Um, I want to add, uh, just personally, um, Simon is also a good friend um, and a mentor uh, to me. Uh, in some ways, he's the reason uh, that I have uh, been able to pursue uh, theological studies. He was the head uh, of the department and of the distance MA um, that, I, uh, that I pursued at, at Nottingham. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, the, the very first email exchange that I ever had with him. I sent some short, vaguely worded inquiry about, so what's this distance MA that you're running? And amazingly, he wrote back with this very long, uh, very detailed, uh, very kind and generous explanation of everything that I would need to know, um, and and I I was I was just blown away. Um, you know, I was very impressed by his responsiveness. Um, he is he is in every way uh, a model um, of a, uh, a theologian uh, who is bringing the work of theology into the life of the church as both professor uh, and priest. Um, so it's a real joy uh, for me to have him here and to introduce him to you. Um, it's a real delight uh, for me to welcome him here tonight. So would you please join me uh, in welcoming our speaker, Simon Oliver. Thank you, Nathan, very much. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's just been a delight to be in Cambridge for the last few days, um, particularly today when the weather's been rather better. So thank you, Nathan, and to Rick, and to everyone at Christ the King uh, to have this opportunity to talk to you this evening about the doctrine of creation. Uh, when someone like me pitches up as a professional theologian with this rather posh English accent, it's difficult to know what to expect. Um, a few years ago, we were in church on a Sunday morning, and our eldest son, Benedict, was at the back of church after the service and got chatting to one of the members of the congregation who said to him, uh, Benedict, what does daddy do for work? 
and he looked at her and said, oh, he goes to the university to talk to people about theology. And she said, Benedict, what's theology? And he looked at her and said under his breath, nobody knows. <laughs> now, I really hope that by the end of this evening, me as a professional theologian will have rendered you a little less perplexed, uh, a little bit clearer about what the theology of creation is all about. Um, let me tell you where, where I'm really beginning from. The, the more and more I've, I've read of the uh, first four centuries of Christian theology uh, and, and studied it and taught it, the clearer it's become to me that the doctrine of creation is absolutely cardinal and fundamental for early Christians. So we tend to focus very much on what happened in the fourth century debates about the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity and humanity of Christ. And that all comes relatively late in the day, but first off, in the first two or three centuries, what they're really interested in is articulating a doctrine of creation that will distinguish Christian belief uh, and practice from wider culture, particularly Greek philosophy, but also the various Gnosticisms that were around that really thought that matter was essentially an evil principle. And for Christian theologians, they knew immediately if they believed that Christ was savior and therefore in some sense divine uh, and that God had become incarnate, then matter couldn't be inimical to God. So they, this was a, a, a key area of concern for them. And uh, very early on, a consensus emerged that if one is to talk about God's creative act in any coherent sense, one has to talk about God creating out of nothing. In other words, there's no material cause to creation. God uh, doesn't have some chaotic material stuff that he fashions into the universe that we know. Um, and there's nothing that is always existent that somehow rivals God's eternity. So this is going to be a constant theme this evening when I get into the paper that the, the key question is how do you distinguish God from creation? How do you make that distinction so that you're careful when you're talking about God that you're not actually talking about an angel? Yep. Otherwise you're talking idolatrously. So you've got to be talking about God as, in a sense, wholly other to anything created, and yet creation has got to have some relation to its creator. So it's trying to balance those two things. Uh, and the doctrine of creation out of nothing that's really going to dominate a lot of what I have to say this evening was absolutely fundamental. And of course, that doctrine of creation is shared also by the Jewish and Islamic traditions for very, very similar reasons. I mean, in the end, Christian theology comes to a rather different articulation of this because of our distinctive doctrine of the Trinity that's rooted in what we believe about Christ. But, uh, but nevertheless, creation out of nothing is, is absolutely fundamental. So I'm going to be talking a lot about what that means. But the, the, the cardinal status of the doctrine of creation, uh, particularly for speaking to uh, pagan and Greek philosophical cultures, is evident even in Scripture, and particularly in uh, St. Paul's speech at the Areopagus in Athens that is recorded by St. Luke in Acts. So if we could have the next slide. Now, St. Paul's speech at the Areopagus is delivered before the people of Athens, 
and Paul is speaking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Uh, he's probably speaking to some pagan Romans as well. And this is what some commentators call past, part guest lecture, part speech for his life. Okay? This is a guest lecture this evening. I hope it's not also a speech for my life. Um, so let's just have a look at what Paul says as he's speaking into what is essentially a public domain. This is a domain of you know, really uh, highly intellectual philosophers and so on. These are uh, educated people in Athens, the intellectual heart of the ancient world. And uh, this is what he says. He says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. He's buttering them up. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, who does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. The God who made the world and everything in it. So the Athenians worship an unknown God, but the first thing that Paul proclaims about the God revealed in Jesus Christ is that he made the world and everything in it. God needs nothing, says St. Paul. He gives to mortals life and breath in all things. God needs nothing. Um, that's absolutely crucial. God doesn't create in order to fulfill a lack in himself. Okay? This, is, this God is not unknown, for the whole creation is saturated with his life and glory. Just look around you. And this is the first thing that Paul says. It's the foundation of his sermon, his speech at the Areopagus. To a public audience of philosophers and public officials in the intellectual heart of the ancient world, the God who made the world and everything in it. So taking a cue from St. Paul and the importance of creation for his lecture at the Areopagus, the contemporary understanding of the Christian theology of creation is what I'd like to address for you this evening. And the key reason is that in our culture, the discourse of science, as spectacularly successful as it is in so many ways, has gained a particular prominence when we consider the origins and nature of the universe. And this allegedly poses a challenge to the theology of creation. Now there can be little doubt that scientists enjoy huge prestige in public discourse. They command the attention of our politicians and our policymakers. This is certainly true in the UK. Um, one should just think about the awe and esteem in which the physicist Stephen Hawking is held, who died, he died probably a month ago now. Uh, there is a very public intellectual figure who could speak on all manner of topics, including extraterrestrial life and the existence of God, um, and yet was, was, was a cosmologist, but he had that authority because of his scientific uh, status and prestige. So the language of science is the language of objective and publicly available reason, which in the complex multicultural societies of the West offers the greatest chance of consensus 
based on empirically established facts. And the technological application of scientific research provides the engine of modern capitalist democracies. In certain hands, the power of today's natural sciences becomes a crucial weapon in the ideological battle concerning the place of religion in public life. So insofar as the sciences give an account of cosmic origins and the nature and development of life, whether it be Big Bang or then evolution, they are seen, as they are seen by some, perhaps most obviously the so-called new atheists, as encroaching on the area that is particularly definitive of the religious viewpoint, namely this idea that we are created. We're not a brute fact, we've not always been here, we are the work of a creator. If there is one claim that distinguishes the classical theisms of Judaism, Christianity and Islam from the atheisms of modernity, it is that the universe is created. To the extent that science can render the idea of creation unintelligible or redundant, as um, Hawking thinks that he'd done, uh, the religious sensibility is confined evermore to the domain of private superstition and myth. So it's argued, for example, that Darwinian evolution and Big Bang cosmology leave God jobless in the task of explaining the origin and nature of the cosmos. In fact, the claim by the new atheists is even stronger than that. They claim that the notion of a creator spoils the simplicity and elegance of scientific explanation, which places the wonder and beauty of nature firmly within the universe itself. Theism also, according to them, leaves us with the insurmountable problem of evil. Why does this supposed creator inscribe the possibility of so much gratuitous and pointless suffering into the created order. So the contemporary debates on creation tend to refer to God's creative act, uh, and this is how um, Richard Dawkins refers to it. These, these contemporary debates, this hotly contested area, tend to they tend to refer to God's creative act as a kind of design that's rather akin to the human design of an artifact like a car or a building. So to the extent that uh, the doctrine of creation is debated at all in the public domain, it's often debated on that kind of basis, that kind of model. And the most recent and controversial variant of this view, far more controversial in this country than it is in, in the UK or Europe, is intelligent design. Now, at first glance, this notion of intelligent design or, or the universe as a designed artifact has very, very noble provenance in ancient Greek philosophy because it looks like this is what Plato in his cosmology, the Timaeus, is precisely uh, proposing. Um, so in the Timaeus, a demiurge takes a pre-existent material chaos and fashions it into an ordered universe that is intelligible to us and can be the object of scientific inquiry, uh, much in the same way that I might make, uh, take a, a whole load of chaotic metal and turn it into a car. And indeed, some, uh, a lot of ID proponents will cite uh, many passages of scripture, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Handiwork is there interpreted in very much the same way as one might view my handiwork when uh, I make a new bookcase for my home or something like that. Now, what such views of design 
have in common is that nature is in some way what we call teleologically ordered. Now, teleology, from the Greek word telos, meaning goal or end, is the study of purposes, or what the ancient Greeks called final causes. So, here are some examples. For some of you, this will be very, very familiar. Um, for others, less so. So, here are some examples. We might say that the whale migrates in order to breed, the heart beats in order to pump blood around the body, or the student studies in order to learn. All of those explanations, the whale migrates in order to breed, the heart beats in order to pump blood around the body, the student studies in order to learn, they are all explanations in terms of a purpose or a goal. And those goals, according to the ancient Greeks and medieval Christian theologians, those goals are causal. They bring about processes and behaviors by establishing a purpose, and they answer the question, why? Now, within the natural order, we naturally observe purpose everywhere, whether it's in bees or birds or babies. And we ascribe purposive behavior preeminently to human beings who can imagine, execute, and achieve their purposes with greater freedom from the constraints of instinct. So we say, for example, why are you going into uh, Cambridge today? Well, I'm going into Cambridge in order to buy a sandwich to satisfy my hunger. That's a perfectly reasonable teleological causal explanation. The goal is satisfying my hunger. And we use that kind of explanation all the time. And we can also impose purpose, goal orientation, onto apparently purposeless materials by making tools or machines, like cars. Now, the so-called design or teleological argument for God's existence ascribes the order and purposes that we naturally observe in nature to the conscious design of a divine creative agency. And this argument draws an analogy between the human making of goal-orientated artifacts, everything from chairs to buildings to cars, from clocks to photocopiers. It draws a direct analogy from that kind of making to the divine creation of a cosmic mechanism. Now, the best-known example of this kind of argument is found in William Paley's uh, famous book, The Natural, uh, Natural Theology, published in 1802. On the first page of that book, Paley provides his famous watch analogy. It'll be familiar to many of you. If I were crossing a heath and kicked a stone, I wouldn't think anything of it. I would assume it had always been there because I can account for the stone in terms of its immediate environment. Okay. But if I found a watch, this answer wouldn't suffice. Why? Because, according to Paley, the watch exhibits an order of parts that gives it purpose, and purpose is to be found in design, the deliberate orientation of things to an end or a goal. Such purposes are the work of conscious contrivance. And so it is with the natural world. The orientation of inert matter, 
towards intricate and beautiful order, life, and eventually conscious human life. And this has its source in an unfathomably complex and beautiful supernatural design. Now, this view um, had already, by the time of the publication of William Paley's Natural Theology, it had already received really fierce criticism, notably from the Scottish philosopher David Hume in his book, which was published posthumously, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, published posthumously in 1779. And he'd said that the analogy just doesn't hold up in, in all kinds of ways. But I suspect that it's this notion of design, of a cosmic mechanism, is what comes to mind when most people today think about creation. I should mention very briefly the most straightforward argument against the idea that creation is a divine design of Paley's kind. And this is the argument that's put by Richard Dawkins and indeed many, many biologists uh, who work on, on evolution. The process of evolution always gives us the impression of purpose and design, but evolution is what Dawkins calls blind. It makes nature look as if it were designed, but in fact there's no designer. Evolution has no particular direction, it's simply a mechanism for reproductive selection by which species evolve from the simple to the more complex. The proponents of intelligent design by and large accept the terms of that debate, but they argue that there are occurrences within nature that are what they call irreducibly complex, such that they cannot be adequately explained by evolutionary design in and of itself, but they're better explained as the direct work of a supernatural agency. Now for the new atheists and other scientistic ideologues, the whole notion of creation stands or falls on the plausibility of a designed universe of the kind proposed by Paley. To the extent that natural processes can be explained without invoking a supernatural agency, the more and more we can push God to the margins, the more and more the defining theistic claim that the universe is created can be confined to the dustbin of superstition and the public credibility of theology goes with it. So what I'd like to say this evening, what I'd like to look at is the historical roots of this idea. Yep. Where does it come from? this idea that God designs the universe in something like the same way that I might design a car or a photocopier. And what we're gonna do is look at a particular view of teleology or purposiveness or orientation towards goals that belongs to this early modern natural theology. And I'm then gonna compare that view of purposiveness in nature to something much more philosophically sophisticated in the early church period in, the high in high medieval Christian theology. And we're gonna see that the more traditional view of the doctrine of creation opens up a different set of questions concerning the nature and value of creation. And it helps us to answer the kind of uh, scientific challenge in a much more fruitful and positive way. So I'm gonna look at the beginnings of uh, the roots of, of modern science in the 17th century uh, and the kind of natural philosophy that generates William Paley's uh, natural theology at the turn of the 19th century. 
But before I continue, I'm afraid that I'm going to need some to outline some rather basic philosophical terminology before we go any further. A bit of jargon busting. And again, apologies, some of you, for some of you this will be very familiar, um, for others uh, less so. If I could have the next slide. And this is the jargon busting that I need to do. Uh, and this is what I need to, to be clear on before we go any further. Okay. So early Christian theologians, um, particularly uh, from the 12th century up to the 16th, 17th century, uh, were great followers of Aristotle. So Aristotle's works had really been lost to Latin-speaking Christians uh, until they came to the Christian West via the Islamic world uh, around uh, the late 12th, early 13th century. And then they came across his philosophy, his physics particularly, and they realized that this was very, very powerful, coherent stuff for trying to understand the way that nature works, and in particular for unlocking some of the curiosities of, of the Christian view of God's dealings with the created order and his work as creator. And one of, the, one of the aspects of Aristotle's philosophy they really found very helpful was his view of causation. What is a cause? How does it work? Now, Aristotle um, had a view of causation which divided a cause into four modes. So if we take the example of someone making a, uh, a sculpture. So Aristotle said there are four causes at work here. The first is, is the most straightforward. It's the material cause. It's the marble out of which the sculpture is made. That's fairly straightforward. Okay? So we have a material cause. And then after that, we have what he calls the formal cause. Now, the form of something, you know, the form of the cup, the form of Simon Oliver, the form of something sometimes we think of as its shape. Yeah? If I talk to about the form of the cup, that's what most naturally springs to mind. And that's not completely off the mark. But what Aristotle means by the form of something, as opposed to its mere matter, is the form is what makes something this rather than that. So the form of the cup is what makes this a cup rather than a mug or a bowl. The form of me is what makes me rather than you or uh, uh, an elephant or a bird. Okay, so everything has what Aristotle calls a form, and the formal cause is integral to something's being what it is rather than being something else. So the formal cause of the marble in this case is the idea, the, the form of the, of the sculpture that the sculptor has in his mind that he transfers to the marble through the act of sculpting. That's the formal cause. And that's what makes the sculpture a sculpture rather than just a lump of marble. Okay? And then we have what's called the efficient cause. And the efficient cause is more or less what most scientists think of as, as a cause today. The efficient cause is essentially, uh, the, f the, the formal definition is the principle of change or rest. It's the event that immediately precedes an effect for the purposes of this evening, think of it as a push or a pull. So the, f the efficient cause would best be thought of here as the striking of the chisel against the marble. Okay. So the efficient cause of this cup moving across the stage here is my hand. All right. It's a push or a pull. And then finally, and this is the cause that we're going to be talking about most this evening, the final cause or the telos in Greek, that 
that for the sake of which, the why, the goal. So the final cause of the sculpture is going to be the decoration of the hallway in my home. Okay? Now, what the ancients and, and the medieval theologians would say is, without the final cause, you, don't, you can't give a proper and truthful and complete account of what's going on. You've got to be able to answer the question, why? Why on earth is he making that sculpture? So what's the purpose of it? Okay? So the final cause is what, we're going to come to this in a minute, is what Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian, called the cause of the causes. Yep. Without the purpose, we don't get any of the other cause causes um, at all. So it's absolutely fundamental for them. And there was, uh, until the 16th and 17th century, believe it or not, there was an overwhelming consensus amongst philosophers and theologians of uh, all kinds, across all traditions, that proper explanation had to refer to final causes or purpose. Okay? So acorns are ordered towards growth into an oak tree, the signet into a swan, humanity towards knowledge and virtue. And for ancient medieval philosophers and theologians, the cosmos was thoroughly teleological, and proper explanation had to refer to ends and purposes. So here's Aquinas, if I could have the next slide, whence it is said that the, e that the end, or the purpose, is the cause of the causes because it is the cause of the causality in all the causes. There's a nice bit of medieval philosophy for you. Okay, scratch your head about that one. Okay, but it's, it's absolutely fundamental for them. But strangely, it's very common to narrate the transition from Thomas's world in the 13th century in the University of Paris to the modern world in which we live. It's very common to narrate that transition in terms of the eradication of final causes. We don't believe in purpose anymore, we just believe in mechanism. So we don't think that there's any purpose, real causal purposes to the way that nature is. The scientific consensus is that we can explain things much better purely by efficient causes, by pushes and pulls, that evolution has no particular end in mind it's just a mechanical process that we go through, okay? That's, that then becomes the general consensus by the 18th century. And we can see it, we can have the next slide, all the way back in the Elizabethan period in the work of Francis Bacon, who is the, uh, the father of the modern scientific method, it's often thought, and he said this, it is right to lay down, to know truly is to know by causes. It is also not bad to distinguish the four causes, as Aristotle had done, material, formal, efficient, and final, but of these, the final is a long way from being useful. In fact, it actually distorts the sciences, except in the case of human actions. Okay? Now, I'm going to come back to that last phrase, except in the case of human actions, shortly. But for the moment, what we need to realize is that uh, explanation becomes very mechanical in the early modern period. And it replaces the Aristotelian view that the universe is intrinsically purposeful. A mechanism was the idea that natural phenomena could be described with reference to a single level of the material universe 
that in the 17th century they called microcorpuscles. So these were tiny little bodies that were thought to act on each other and transmit a mechanical quantity of motion via physical contact. In other words, it's like billiard balls crashing into each other. And collectively, these microcorpuscles, they form the macroscopic world that we experience. And explanation of macroscopic phenomena, like, for example, a plant flowering or an animal moving, was via reduction to the physics of microcorpuscles. So just as one could um, just as one could explain the working of a printing press by reducing it to its moving parts and their action upon each other, so one could, one could explain the working of an animal by reducing it to its microcorpuscles and their action upon each other. So within a mechanistic cosmos, there are no purposes or goals as such. Everything can be explained in terms of the mechanical actions of material elements one upon another. And these actions can be identified by the science of physics through mathematical explanation. So here's, to put the matter very simply, here are two kinds of explanation. The first is teleological, and the second is in terms of efficient causes. So on the one hand, the heart beats in order to pump blood around the body. That's a teleological explanation, in order to. The other one is not. The heart beats because electrical activity spreads through the walls of the atria and causes them to contract. Okay? The latter is a more mechanical explanation. It's physical events. The top explanation is purposive. Now, we will use that kind of purposive explanation all the time, very, very naturally. But the modern scientific view would say that's not proper explanation at all. It's fanciful. You know, the, p the heart isn't trying to do anything. It's not conscious. You know, it's not straining in the way that a human, uh, human conscious intention would strain. Um, in fact, we're better to explain what's going on simply through the electrical activity in the brain as it's linked to our nervous system. Okay. So the English experimental philosophers of the 17th century who did away with the purposive world and replaced it with a very mechanical world, so these included, if we could click... Isaac Newton, click again, Robert Boyle, click again, Robert Hooke, click again, Christopher Wren, the architect and designer of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. They believed that proper explanation was always to be given in terms of mechanical and efficient causes. Again, at the risk of oversimplification, they were interested very much in how the universe operated, and they were only secondarily interested, for other reasons, in why the universe operated. And it's as if the universe for them were a clockwork mechanism whose explanation, whose operation, like a clock, could be understood and manipulated entirely on its own terms, eventually leaving its maker to one side. One might learn something about the clockmaker, but that's not really relevant to the proper understanding of the clock's operation. Now, the interesting thing about these natural philosophers as they were then called. The term scientist doesn't arise until the 19th century. The interesting thing about these natural philosophers who helped to found the Royal Society in 1660 in London, which is today perhaps the world's most prestigious scientific learned society, is that they had a very clear motive for paying attention to the designer of the cosmic mechanism. 
What was that motive? Why were they proposing all this? Okay, well, the reason is this. Whereas today's scientists enjoy considerable respect and prestige, think about the kind of research funding that sloshes around Harvard and MIT for the natural sciences today, okay? We take that for granted. For these early scientists, natural philosophers, that was very far from the case. The purpose of their experiments and their, their mathematical treaties was not at all clear. There was no obvious technological or industrial application of natural philosophical treaties such as Newton's Principia Mathematica. The purpose it discovered, the purpose for this, this scientific enterprise it discovered, is in fact very well expressed in an exchange between Isaac Newton and an ambitious young clergyman, Richard Bentley, in 1692. So if I could have the next slide. Richard Bentley wrote to Newton and said to him, why did you write the Principia Mathematica? No one understands what on earth this is about. So it's written in Latin. It's written in a new calculus, a new kind of mathematics that no one understood. Newton published it uh, in 1687. He sends copies to all the heads of the colleges in Cambridge University, and they're all there scratching their heads, and they then employ specialist mathematicians to decode it for them, to tell them what, what it means. And so immediately, uh, the, the Principia Mathematica, which didn't go into an English version until much, much later, the Principia Mathematica is seen as uh, the vessel of secrets. You know, this is the mind of God. Newton's unlocked how it's done, and it's written in this mysterious language called the calculus. Um, and so this, this whole industry of, of uh, popular science starts to grow up around Newton's um, Principia. And Bentley writes to him and says, okay, well, why did you write this? We can't do anything with it. It's terribly interesting, but there's not much we can do with it. Newton replies like this. When I wrote about my treatise about our system, I had an eye upon such principles as might work with considering men for the belief of a deity, and nothing can rejoice me more than to find it useful for that purpose. In other words, the Principia Mathematica is a work of theology, of Christian apologetics. And indeed, when the second edition is published uh, in the early 18th century, Newton adds what's called a general scolium at the end, uh, where he explains all this and he gives his doctrine of God. Uh, so, in other words, what Newton is interested in is saying, we do all this science and this mathematics because it's useful for promoting Christian belief. Here's another example, if we could have the next slide. So here is, um, sorry, that's um, Newton's doctrine of God. Uh, if we move on to the next slide. Okay, so here's Robert Boyle, another great experimenter. Many of you will have studied Boyle's law. And what Robert Boyle says is that there are not many subjects in the whole compass of natural philosophy that better deserve to be inquired into by Christian philosophers than that which is discoursed in of the following essay. For certainly it becomes such men to have curiosity enough to try at least whether it can be discovered that there are any knowable final causes, in other words purposes, to be considered in the works of nature. Since if we neglect this inquiry, we live in danger of being ungrateful in overlooking the uses of things that may give us just cause of admiring and thanking the author of them, in other words, God, 
and of losing the benefits relating as well to philosophy as piety that the knowledge of them may afford us. So what happens in this period is not a wholesale rejection of purpose and order, but it's redefinition. So what they tend to think is that nature has a purpose and order, but it's to provide things that are useful for us. Yep, that's why God designed them, so that we could then exploit them and make use of them. And this led to a whole industry of people who started to get really worried about the purpose of apparently useless creatures. So there's a, a rather lovely example that's cited by the Australian historian of science, Peter Harrison, of uh, a Jesuit priest called Noel Antoine Pluche, who wrote a treatise in which he really worried about the usefulness of woodworm. Why had God given us woodworm? What was the design benefit of woodworm? The answer that Noel Antoine Pluche comes up with is international relations. Of course. Woodworm improves international relations. What's the pattern of thought there? Well, woodworm rots the hulls of our ships, which means that we have to then go to the French to buy timber off them in order to repair our ships so we can sail them again. And this is why God gave us woodworm. That's the design purpose of woodworm. So, so this, this, the idea that purposiveness just goes in the early modern period is not quite true. It gets redefined. Things are not purposive for themselves because they're valuable in themselves. They're valuable only in relation to us and the use that we can make of them. And it's a very short skip and a jump from that to the contemporary environmental crisis and the exploitation of nature. So a lot of theorists will trace it back to this idea that the teleology or purpose of the natural order is so focused on us as the telos, as the goal or end, that nature actually loses any intrinsic telos and value. Okay? So creation in for these 17th and 18th century natural philosophers who were all uh, they were Christians of a certain kind, but of, of a very heretical kind. So Newton rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, even though he was a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. It must have been very galling for him, and rejected the divinity of Christ. This was not uncommon. He wrote far more about theology than he ever did about physics. Um, so, but they were all concerned with theology and religious belief. But uh, they tended to think of teleological purpose in nature as given by God in the form of a design, much as a clockmaker designs a clock but orientates things towards our use, okay? Our use more than anything else. So the question I now want to address is, um, what's different about the way that they thought of the purposes of nature compared to the way that someone like Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century thought about purposes in nature. So let's take, for example, to make this clear, something very familiar to us, a photocopier. Okay, so the goal or purpose of, of the machine, the photocopier, is the production of a given document. Okay, this teleological order, so that's the purpose of it. Photocopy my sermon, my term paper. That's the purpose of it. But that teleological order is not intrinsic to the materials from which the photocopier is built. 
okay? The order of the photocopier comes from the intentions of the photocopier's designer and its operator. The material nature of the photocopier, the metal, the electronics, the toner, has an order and orientation imposed upon it by the designer and the operator. Such order and orientation doesn't emerge from the form of the photocopier's material parts, but has its origin in human design and manufacture, in the structure and order that's first present in the designer's mind. The material stuff from which the machine is made is at best passive and indifferent to the form and order imposed upon it by the process of design and manufacture. Once the photocopier is manufactured and in operation, the designer and operator can withdraw and hope that there are no paper jams. This is how the teleological order of creation was imagined in early modern science. Matter is passive and its teleological order is extrinsic or external. It's imposed from outside. Matter features no intrinsic powers or orientation. Motion was explained not in terms of inherent powers towards particular ends, but in terms of forces that change a body's state of motion from the outside. Mechanical pushes and pulls, as it were. So how does that view differ from what someone like Aristotle thought? Right. Could we have the next slide? Here is what Aristotle thinks about purposive movement, the development, the growth of things. He said this, nature, what is natural, is the distinctive form or quality of such things as have, this is the crucial phase, within themselves the principle of motion. Such form or characteristic property not being separable from the things themselves except conceptually. So in other words, the goal or telos of something is given by its form, by what it is, its defining essence, and it's intrinsic to the creature. For example, the form of the acorn, its acornness, is also its orientation to the goal of becoming an oak tree. The acorn contains within itself, in a potential way, the potential to become an oak tree. And Aristotle would say the same about, uh, he, would, he would say fundamentally that the acorn has the form, the potential to become an oak tree rather than a buttercup or a horse chestnut. Okay, so it's the intrinsic nature of the purposiveness. It's given to something within itself. And he's, Aristotle is there distinguishing natural things from artificial things that are created by human designers. Things that we make, like beds and cars and photocopiers, they have a form to them and therefore a goal or a purpose, but that's not intrinsic to the matter from which they are made. It's extrinsic and derives from human intention. But the form of the product is always extrinsic and so too the telos and the purpose. The designer imposes upon the material its, its form and its purpose. So we arrive at a really important distinction, next slide, in Aristotle, between things that are, are natural and things that he calls artificial that are made by art. 
And by art, he means any kind of human artifice, from beds to photocopiers to cars to paintings. And what Aristotle says is that art, the things that human beings make, imitate nature. Art imitates nature. So when we create something that has a purpose to it, like a car, a photocopier, or a chair, we impose upon the material a form and a purpose. We are imitating or relying upon an intrinsic purposiveness or teleology that's already present in natural things. So what he's saying is the very possibility of human beings making things that they can use for purposes is already dependent upon, has to work with a natural purposiveness in nature. Okay? So the teleological structure of nature, its intrinsic teleology, is already presupposed. Now, the kind of teleology proposed by early modern natural science, like that in Newton, Boyle, and Hooke, and so on, is by and large much more of the extrinsic variety. Okay? Much more that matter is just passive stuff, uh, and it's something upon which God layers a purpose or an order. Okay, that's not intrinsic to the things itself. So the upshot of this is that whereas for Aristotle and the, the, the medieval Christian theologians, our art imitates God's nature, for modern natural philosophers or physico-theologians as they became known, the physicist theologians, matter is passive, laws of nature are given by God and layered upon passive matter, and the teleological order of nature doesn't belong to nature itself. Creation therefore becomes a kind of work of divine artifice that's akin to a very big version of the artifacts that we make. No longer does art imitate nature, but, next slide, nature imitates art. So the way that we understand natural things is very much in terms of the way that we understand the th kinds of mechanisms that we create. This is an example of an automaton known as the writer from the 18th century. This is a mechanical operating child who does actually write script. But this is not innocent. This reflects very clearly the idea that um, the human person is essentially a machine, just rather more complex than that automaton. Okay. So examining the history of this physico-theology as it arose in the 17th and 18th century, we can see that its understanding of God was very much a product of the way that nature had already been conceived and investigated. In other words, the mechanistic cosmology that they, they espouse, this idea that the universe is essentially a huge mechanism like a clock, with matter as simply passive stuff, devoid of any form or purpose, that gave rise in turn to a conception of God as a supreme and all-powerful ruler and mechanic standing alongside creation and ex acting within creation as one causal force amongst other causal forces. And the results were as follows. After the nascent natural sciences of the 17th century have been deemed legitimate through their association with Christian piety, 
uh, they could then receive a new purpose in the 19th century through their technological application. We could do all sorts of things like artificial light and industrial processes with this science. At that point, the natural sciences of the 19th century no longer needed to justify themselves in relation to Christian, Christian theology and God. The sciences justified themselves because you could make things using science and you could sell them. And therefore, they could just marginalize this idea of a mechanistic, uh, of, a, of God as a mechanic. They could put all that to one side. Okay? Now, what happened then, it seems to me, is that you push this m mechanical, this, this uh, uh, mechanistic God to one side. The science has since moved on. You know, we don't now generally believe that the universe works like a mechanism. We don't believe that matter is simply passive. Uh, the science has moved on. The theology hasn't. That's the key thing. The science has moved on. The theology hasn't. Now, the historian of science, Jessica Riskin, who works, I think, at uh, Berkeley, uh, she's recently pointed out the consequences of all this, uh, these developments in the 17th and 18th century in her book, The Restless Clock. If I could have the next slide. Okay. And she says, she examines the consequences of banishing any notion of agency within nature. So, in other words, um, there's no agency intrinsic to the natural order. Things are just matter bashing against each other. Okay? And what she means by the banishment of agency then is that natural agents are not agents active in their own right in this mechanical universe. They're simply cogs in the mechanistic wheel of the cosmos that's periodically manipulated by God, the designer, and governed by the laws of nature. So Riskin is particularly concerned with um, the rhetoric of contemporary biology. And for those of you who are biologists, this, I think, for today is quite interesting. So she says this, I think that biologists' figures of speech reflect a deeply hidden yet abiding quandary created by the 17th century banishment of agency from nature. Do the order and action of the natural world originate inside or outside? That's the extrinsic, extrinsic problem. Either answer raises big problems. Saying inside violates the ban on ascriptions of agency to natural phenomena such as cells or molecules, and so risks sounding mystical or magical. Saying outside assumes a supernatural source of nature's order, and so violates another scientific principle, the principle of naturalism. In other words, never refer to God. So what Riskin is pointing out here is precisely the problem of intrinsic and extrinsic teleology. In the order and teleology of nature, if it's intrinsic to nature, we have to say that entities such as molecules and organisms are not just mechanisms. They're agents whose agency emerges from within and expresses what they are. And to account for such agency, we'd need an account of causation that's far more comprehensive than simply mechanistic efficient causes. On the other hand, if the order and teleology of nature is extrinsic to nature, it's got to be ascribed to a supernatural agency such as God. And then we're back to the divine designer, an idea that's roundly rejected by contemporary science as completely opposed to their discipline, which must refer only to natural causes. 
Now, the point, I think, is that the deeper Christian tradition can help us with this quandary because it, it avoids us opting either for intrinsic or extrinsic order. In one sense, the purposes of God's creation are intrinsic to creatures themselves. They're not imposed from the outside, and matter isn't purely passive. It's always what Aristotle would call N-formed. It's always already intrinsically ordered to certain ends, just by being a this rather than a that, an acorn rather than uh, uh, a seed for another kind of plant. Yet whilst the forms of creatures are intrinsic to the material natures of those creatures, they exist only by participating in God, who's created them out of nothing and sustains their existence at every moment. And in that sense, it's extrinsic. So the forms of creatures for early Christian theologians reside in an exemplary way in what theologians of the Neoplatonic tradition call the divine ideas. And the achievement of theologians like Thomas Aquinas is to hold the intrinsic and extrinsic teleology of creatures together theologically. So the forms of creatures, and therefore their goals and their purposes, are in one sense intrinsic to them because they're possessed by creatures themselves. My form and my purpose as a human being is really mine, right to the core of my being, and it defines who I am. When creatures move towards their goal, that motion or change isn't imposed from the outside. I'm not being moved. I really move myself. It is really my own. But in another sense, that purpose and that goal is extrinsic. It's from beyond me because it has its ultimate source and its ultimate goal in God who made me out of nothing. So the, the critical point is the universe is neither purely natural, intrinsic teleology, neither is it artificial, extrinsic teleology. It's not one or other of those. It's not natural or artificial. It's created. And that is the difference. Okay? So creation is something very different from saying that nature is purely natural or it's a work of artifice. Creation is something rather different. And what's bequeathed to us by early modern natural theology of the kind of that William Paley proposed, a natural theology that had deep and abiding influence on the founding documents and culture of this country, is one that renders the idea of creation deeply problematic and I would venture idolatrous because it thinks of creation as a mechanism and a thing that stands alongside God. And God comes to be understood as a very big version of ourselves as the designer of a cosmic mechanism. So just in the last five minutes, I'd like to give you some idea of a different kind of doctrine of creation that's rather more um, traditional and might help us a little bit more. So the doctrine of creation out of nothing is the idea that God, first of all, creates in complete freedom. So when I come to make something, for example, I try and make a vase out of a lump of clay, 
to a certain extent, I'm restricted by the material that I have before me. I can't make anything at all out of the clay. I have to, I could make a vase, but it'd be very silly for me to try and make a table or a pen out of the clay. So I'm restricted. But because God has no material in front of him to fashion, nothing to challenge him, he creates everything out of nothing, God creates in complete freedom. And God is the source then of everything that is not God, including matter, space, and time. But the critical point about creation ex nihilo is that it's not ex nihilo simply at the point of the Big Bang. I'll come back to that in a moment. It's ex nihilo at every moment. So this moment now is as much out of nothing as the very first moment. Creatures in and of themselves, considered only in themselves, are nothing. They only exist in relation to God, okay, by sharing in the divine being. So the Christian doctrine of creation doesn't say, and this is, this is how it's commonly understood, that one, at one point there was God, and then all of a sudden there were two things, God plus creation. Okay? This is absolutely not how the early Christian theologians understand it, because then you've got two things. You've got two foci of being. Whereas the way they understood it is there is only one really existent thing, and that is God. And everything else exists only by sharing in that existence in a creaturely way. Okay? So there's, there's no sense in which uh, creation comes to st stand alongside God and kind of challenge God as if it were a separate uh, object of our attention. Um, Creation ex nihilo, incidentally, I should just say, has got nothing whatsoever to do with the Big Bang. Um, the, the Big Bang, the, so scientific explanation will always refer to one thing becoming another. It's, in other words, it's a natural process. Uh, and all attempts to explain the Big Bang are, are descriptions of one thing becoming another. Fluctuation in a quantum vacuum is not nothing. Okay? It's terribly important. And... Uh, they understood this very clearly in the fourth century. We struggle to understand it today. They, they say very clearly, motion, uh, creation out of nothing is not a change. It's not one thing becoming another. It's not a process. It's not what Thomas Aquinas calls a motion. Uh, it is the instantiation of created being in its fullness itself. Uh, and it's the ground of there being any other causation at all. It's not another instance of cause. If, it weren't, if we didn't describe it in that way, creation would essentially be another event within the created order, and it's not. It is the whole basis of the created order. And this establishes what we call the complete asymmetry between God and creation. Um, so one way of describing this would be to say that um, the difference between God and, cre and, and creation is not like the difference between me and this pew. The difference between me and this pew is established both by the pew and by me. I have a material nature over here. The pew has a material nature over there. We establish ourselves by that, what they call the principle of individuation, the wood of the pew, the, the my body, establishes a kind of symmetrical relation between me and the pew. That is not how it is with God. What makes me other than God is not me. It is God holding me as other than him. That's, that's, sorry, that's a slightly opaque way of putting it. But 
I don't establish myself as other than God. God establishes me as other than God. That's what being a creature is all about. Okay? If I was self-standing and established myself as other than God, I would be idolatrously challenging God. I would be putting myself, as it were, on the same plane. In the same way that I'm the same kind of material thing as the pew, we establish each, uh, each other as other than each other. Okay? I'm not the same kind of thing as God. My entire existence is down to the gratuity of the divine and therefore down to God's graciously holding me and making me other than himself. Um, and my existence is then only by participation in the divine. Primary and secondary causes. Okay, if I push this um, plastic cup across the, across the platform here, was who moved it? Was it me or was it God? Okay, was it me or was it God? Now, my undergraduates at Durham would stay up until four in the morning debating that over their instant coffee. Um, if you think that's an intelligible question, you've completely misunderstood the relationship between God and creatures. The point is, was it me or was it God? It was both, but in completely different senses. Okay? That's the answer. So, I am able to move the cup across the platform because... God has created and, in a sense, moved me, right? Now, the example I'd like to give you of this is an example that some of you will be very familiar with from Nathan. What's the, what's the baseball team? Can I, can I use this example? Is that okay? Yeah. So what's the baseball team you use? The Patriots. Okay. So I do it in terms of soccer, but okay, let's do it in terms of American football. So, uh, the New England Patriots, isn't it? Okay. So, the New England Patriots, they win the Super Bowl. Uh, I know this is completely incredible, but just suspension of disbelief for a moment. So, some very, very wealthy billionaire comes along and buys the New England Patriots, and he hires the most expensive and finest coach in the land, who in turn buys in the best players he can possibly find. And they very improbably go on and win the Super Bowl. Now, the question is, who caused the New England Patriots to win the Super Bowl? Was it the billionaire who bought the, who bought the team? Or was it the coach who trained the, trained the players? Or was it the players themselves? Now, the answer is, it's all three, but in completely different senses. Okay? So, the, 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 the guy who bought the team is, in a sense, what they would call the primary cause of the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. The coach would be the secondary cause and the players would be the tertiary cause. And the primary cause is the one who enables all the others to be causal powers in their own right. Okay? Now, we might think that um, that means that the person we really need to praise in all this is the billionaire who bought the team. But this is where the analogy is quite, is quite useful because actually at, at the final game in the Super Bowl when they win it, where is our praise most clearly focused. It's on the players, not on the billionaire, because he's watching it on a TV on his private jet somewhere else over the country. So all our praise doesn't go to the primary cause, it goes to the most immediate cause, which is the players on the field. So when, um, you know, when we do well at work, when we get a new job, when we succeed in our exams and all the rest of it, 
we could say, well, the primary cause of all this is my creator is God, and that's really where everything, all the praise goes, and it needs to be deflected from me. Actually, no, it really is your work, and God has enabled it to be really your work. So you, you're, generally praise, you're genuinely praiseworthy. You're not just a puppet in the hands of the divine. So the distinction between primary and secondary causes is terribly important for this doctrine of creation. Creation is a gift. Uh, it is fundamentally a gift, and this makes all the difference in the world. Can you, sorry, I've rabbited on for far too long, and I would wrap this up in a moment, but I'd really like to tell you why I think this is absolutely fundamental. Okay, um, I have two objects on my person. Uh, one of them is uh, my watch. And let's imagine that this is my iPad. <laughs> okay? Uh, sorry, Nathan, I'll give it you back in a moment. Uh, this is a gift, this isn't. If I were to put these on eBay, um, let's assume that this is nearly new, it would get a couple hundred dollars. If I were to put this on eBay, it would get $20, right? But the point is that uh, I bought this for work. It's incredibly useful, and it has a certain kind of monetary value. Uh, and I use it every day, and I'd rather not be without it. I could sell it for a reasonable number of dollars. That's great. Um, but it is a functional object. This is a gift because it was given to me by my wife. Okay? So this means something. This doesn't. This means something in the sense that it signifies and points to the relationship between me and my wife. This doesn't mean anything because it's just something that I bought from the local store to use for work. But it doesn't point beyond itself. It only is functional. This is a gift. This is a thing. Right? Creation is a gift. It's not a thing. It's more like the watch than it is like the iPad. And that means that makes all the difference. I could make a lot of money out of this. I could make almost no money out of this. But this I treasure and this I don't. This has meaning, this doesn't. This makes a moral claim on me. I can do what I want with this. I could sell this tomorrow. I could give it back to Nathan. doesn't matter. This I can't because someone's given it to me and it makes a moral claim on me. Now, living what the, the Christian difference what it means to live as a baptized person is to live your life as a gift rather than a thing. That's absolutely fundamental. And that makes all the difference in the world because it makes a moral claim on you. If your life is a gift, it asks you every day, what are you doing with that gift? How are you valuing it? To what use are you purpose are you putting it? You know, my life is not the outcome of a blind evolutionary process. I'm not a brute fact. I'm a gift, and therefore, like the watch, unlike the iPad, my life has meaning. Yeah? In other words, it has purpose. It has a teleology that's intrinsic to it, but also extrinsic in the sense that it is given by God. Yeah? There is a giver. Richard Dawkins says, I'm so grateful for my life. Grateful to who? Yeah? There's no giver. So this is why creation as gift is just absolutely fundamental. And we cannot measure gifts in purely monetary terms. 
But gifts, in order to be truly gifts, need to be recognized as such, recognized as gifts, in order to be fully themselves and not to be just things. So, for example, uh, at Christmas time, we go down, we go into our, our sitting room at home around the Christmas tree, and our sons open their presents, uh, and they open their present, and there is a new bike, and they're absolutely delighted. And what do they do? They turn around and they smile and they say thank you. And when they say thank you, the full meaning of that gift of the bike has finally landed. It's been received as a gift and therefore it will be held as a gift. In other words, they've recognized that it's not just a thing that's useful for getting to school, it has meaning. It mediates our love for our children in however partial a way. That's why gift is so utterly crucial. And because gifts have meaning, like the watch, like the bike, and so on and so forth, our lives as gifts, nature as gift, it, the implication of that is that creation is sacramental. In other words, it's a pattern of signs that point beyond themselves to God. Okay? That's the rather sermon-like <laughs> ending to the talk. But what I really want to point to is that this idea that the cosmos is a mechanism that stands alongside God that is essentially passive to which God designs extrinsically where there's no intrinsic purpose to creatures we are simply cogs in a, a system that's very common in the public imagination and it's a very easy image to grasp. It's very straightforward because it makes creation familiar to us from the way that we make things. But the deeper Christian tradition is clear that the relationship between God and creation is much more interesting. It's rather more complex. And it means that our purposiveness, the gifted nature of our lives, is both intrinsic to us, it's really ours, but it's also extrinsic. It has a source beyond us in God. And if we were to understand it as both intrinsic and extrinsic, that may even have implications for the way that we understand causal relationships scientifically within the natural order. That's, that argument is the argument I'm trying to make in the book that I'm writing at the moment, that it would help to make certainly the life sciences rather more intelligible to us, and it would make life real to us in a way that it, it sometimes isn't at the moment. But I've spoken for far too long. You've been extraordinarily patient. Thank you ever so much, and I'll shut up now. Well, thanks, Simon, uh, so much great stuff uh, to think about there. I want to give us some time to ask questions. Um, we'll go a bit later than we had planned. I think we can spend about 20 minutes um, for some Q&A. So, and if you don't mind, I'll just let you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think anyone wants yeah. to ask. Yeah, yeah, by all means. Okay. So this is a question about Richard Balcom, who's a, a British principally New Testament scholar, but uh, has written a lot about these sorts of themes. Um, okay. So Richard Balcom. Uh, in his work on creations, talks a lot about the intrinsic value of creatures and very little about 
their, the, the extrinsic source of that value. So the question is, is he missing something? Um, the, what Balcom's talking about there is really addressing um, the doctrine of creation in relation to the environmental crisis. So the, 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 the a lot of theories about the historical roots of the environmental crisis will point to the Reformation. They will say that um, the reformers had this, this view that I've spoken about a lot this evening, that creatures are given to us by God for our use, that they don't have any intrinsic purposiveness and value, and therefore what we need to do is say that um, you know, the goal or end or purpose of the tree is something that's intrinsic to the tree and doesn't simply belong to me when I make a table out of it. Yep. So um, it seems that what Balcom's doing is he's trying to reinvest nature with intrinsic value and purpose. You know, there is a purpose that belongs to a bird or a whale or so on um, that, that makes no reference to human use. Um, and I think what I would want to add then is that we uh, the real ethical question then is the use that we make of nature and we do all the time uh, in our artifice in our culture how does that uh, how does that sit more comfortably with the natural purposes of creatures that we can discern with their own proper ends rather than working violently against them yeah so it may be that the tree's uh, goal or telos qua tree is flourishing and flowering and growing and all the rest of it. It may be that it has a uh, that the material nature of the tree has a telos or goal in relation to us because we can make pews out of them. That's fine, but uh, the point is, how do you how do you develop that extrinsic use in a way that doesn't destroy the intrinsic purposiveness of trees in general? So I think that, um, I mean, Balcom is really emphasizing the intrinsic purposiveness and value because he's addressing the environmental crisis. But I think that then leads us to an ethical question about, okay, well, if we're going to use trees for our own ends, how does that fit with the intrinsic purposiveness of, of creatures that we, that we have to perceive? Because what was happening in the 17th and 18th century is that they were just denying any intrinsic purposiveness to anything at all. You can do with it what you want. It's got no intrinsic goal of its own. The, the, the fundamental goal is what you make of it and how you therefore exploit it. Um, but ultimately, in the doctrine of creation, you're going to have a source of the goal of all creatures as being ultimately in God himself. Yeah. Um, who so Thomas Aquinas has this wonderful phrase that I think is quite useful for explaining this. He says, when God creates the universe... It is as if the, manu the, the creator of a ship were able to give to the timbers the power to move themselves into the form of a ship. It's as if a, a shipbuilder were able to do that. So what he's saying there is that God makes creation make itself. Yep. He gives it its own power to form itself into the beautiful thing that we, we are part of. So it, that belongs to God extrinsically, but it becomes intrinsic. That's the thing. In a way that a clock can't make itself, or a photocopier can't make itself. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is a, um, this teaching in Genesis is the, w- is the one teaching that apparently is, is, is so stressed by the reformers that the historians really cite this and say, once you've got this focus on a particularly literal interpretation of, of Genesis 1 to 3 and the commands to have dominion, then you've got also an interpretation of the Imago Dei, the image of God, as uh, an image in terms of dominion and power over the created order. And how you interpret that phrase, as, uh, you know, that scriptural phrase, that command, is of course critical. And people have done it in very, very different ways. But um, it seems to me that the way that one best interprets it is to say that we share in the providential action of God. So um, the way that someone like Augustine of Hippo, writing in the late 4th, early 5th century, would put it is to say that um, God, uh, uh, on the sixth day, completes his creation. He rests on the seventh day. But then he says, okay, well, why does Christ then say in John's gospel, the Father and I have been working until now? Because it implies there's still a divine action going on. And he says, well, what's going on is that at the end of the sixth day, creation has within itself everything that it will ever need to become most fully itself. But becoming fully itself is something that is yet to be fully realized, and that's God's providential action is guiding creation to its full end, to the fullness of itself. In other words, it's teleological. And the point about dominion is that we have dominion in the sense that our, our, our aim is to share in that divine action of guiding creation to its proper end, of fulfilling itself. Um, but we need to be able to identify the ends of things. We need to th- be able to say, yep, there is a real purpose to the way creatures are, particularly us. Uh, so what is the proper ends of human beings? That's where we start. And then you need an account of a human nature. There really is something it is to be a human being beyond our will and what we just happen to want on a Thursday evening. Um, and you're into a very, very complex debate. Um, but it, it's, it seems to me that um, providential guidance is really what, what it's all about. But sharing in a primary providential guidance of God there is something objective there for us to refer to. Okay, absolutely. Okay, brilliant question. Um, so uh, people like Bruno Latour is a French um, theorist, historian of science. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what he's trying to do. Um, actually, I mean, his Catholic sensibilities are very, very clear in that, I think. Um, Others have tried to do it in purely naturalistic terms, so Thomas Nagel would be an example, his book Mind and Cosmos. Um, Okay, so very briefly, uh, I showed you a quote from Francis Bacon in the 17th century where he said that we can talk about purposes and final causes only in human affairs. So it's fine with human intentional consciousness because we establish goals for ourselves all the time. You know, we get in the car in order to go home. It's perfectly obvious, that's fine. That's how conscious intention works. So we can use teleological explanation with human beings, but not anywhere else in nature because things just happen mechanically or by instinct or whatever. There's no conscious purpose. And the question you're then addre- you, you then have to address is, how do you get human conscious intention 
out of a nature that is purposeless and not goal-orientated. How does the one arise out of the other? If we are just brutish matter that is not ordered to any end, how on earth do human beings as the conscious I arise? And that's the classic problem of mind. Now, the way that philosophers are now talking about this is they're saying human conscious intention that's goal-orientated is taken to its highest pitch an example of a purposiveness and goal orientation that goes all the way right down through nature, but arises in ways that are more simple and more crude, but there's always a purpose and goal to everything. And even Aristotle would say that, um, that there is a purpose and goal even to uh, a solid object. Its purpose and goal is to fall to the lowest place in the cosmos. Boom, there you go. So even that has got some sort of purposiveness to it. And this uh, arises up in greater and greater complexity to the intentional human mind. Now, it seems to me that, uh, to put it very, very briefly and crudely, if you're going to have patterns of purposiveness and teleology interlinking in that way, you get the idea of, um, you know, for example, the wholeness of an organism that's more than the sum of its parts you then eventually get to the whole notion of there being a universe. In other words, there's a, a whole to the cosmos. It's, it's interlinked in its existence such that it, in its wholeness it becomes intelligible to science. But then it seems to me you've got the idea that everything comes together to form a whole. And then you have to ask the question, does the whole mean anything? And that's the theological question. And it seems to me that to give a proper account of the wholeness and order of the cosmos, you need, uh, you are going to be driven to uh, a notion of a transcendent God who is wholly other, who is the very basis of there being a wholeness and order the, to the created order itself. So this is a very, this is now quite um, a, an interesting argument that in order to have a proper and intelligible science, you actually need God to account for the wholeness and order of, the, of, of science's proper object, which is nature. And that's the argument of Michael Hamby's book, No God, No Science. So it seems to me that we can't have entirely naturalistic explanations of these things, to put it, to put it briefly. You're always driven in the end to the God question, which is why people are constantly asking people like Richard, uh, about like Stephen Hawking, do you believe in God? You know, no one's actually very interested in the cosmology. I mean, the a Brief History of Time is probably the most boring book ever written. Um, no one will quite admit they can't get beyond page three, but they will ask him, do you believe in God? It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a physicist. Um, I would tell you a story, but I, <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> Until we've finished, and then I'll tell you. Two more, two more very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think the way that Im this impinges on the kind of theoretical physics that you're doing is rather different to the way that it impinges upon the life sciences, which is much more immediate and obvious. Um, because you know what you're dealing with is is um, fundamental forces and rather basic matter. Um, 
and, th and therefore actually strangely compared to the life sciences is rather more straightforward. I mean, I don't mean, you know what I mean. I mean, it's not, the mathematics of it certainly isn't. But, um, but in, in terms of the processes involved and the complexities involved, I think wha what I'm really interested in um, is, is the status, the nature of matter itself which seems to me is, is, is not decided by physicists particularly. You know, we're not, we're not as clear as people often assume we are about what matter is, um, state of energy or, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, even light has a very ambiguous status, doesn't it? Um, so it seems to me that what happens in the 17th and 18th century that's critical is that matter comes to be seen as just passive stuff. Yeah. Now, we don't think that anymore. And, and if it's not just passive stuff, then what is it? And if it's not passive, it's active. It's always doing something. And it's doing something in a way that's intelligible, which means that in some sense it's ordered towards certain kinds of... We can tell what it's going to do because it's ordered towards certain kinds of ends that make it intelligible to us scientifically. As, as crude and basic as those ends are, matter does what matter does, which is behave in this way towards this end. Yep. So it seems to me that the, the non-passive nature and the complex uh, nature of matter um, and its very, very different forms at different times in cosmic evolution present all kinds of really interesting questions about, uh, about how order emerges uh, in increasing complexity that can't ignore the teleological issue, it seems to me. I mean, the key, the key thing is to the whole project is you know, teleology, order, order and purposiveness uh, can't, you know, theologically, as Christian believers, you can't concede that point. You can't say, oh, there is no purpose. I mean, that, that, that would be to give up on eschatology. It would be give to give up on all kinds of things. So in the science theology dialogue, that issue's got to be addressed if you're going to um, make any progress, it seems to me. Um, and in fact, I spend quite a lot of time trying to point out to scientists who are Christian believers that um, they're using teleological explanation all the time and often don't realize that they're doing so. Um, but it is um, proper to science to do that. I mean, one, one way of thinking about it would be to say that um, you know, your, your life is a gift that's given to you and in order to remain a gift, it must be given again. Otherwise, it just becomes a thing, you know. And, and if, you, if you sort of shore up your life, pull up all the drawbridges and keep it to yourself, the gift starts to wither as a gift. If you give it again, it, it, remains, it, it remains a lively gift. So the question then is, you've received your life as a gift. To what are you going to give it? Yep. It's a critical ethical question for every human being. To what are you going to give your attention? What do you love most? What are you going to pass on your life to? To whom? Why? You're back to purposiveness again. Um, if I could just, uh, do you want to finish? No, I could I just say one more comment about gift, because this idea often sort of, you know, seems to be quite significant for people. Um, the, this, the theological interest in gift is often traced back actually to a French anthropologist working in the 1920s called Marcel Mauss. 
uh, and he did a lot of um, field work on gift giving in very primitive societies and how does it relate to trade. So he said something like this, these are my examples. If I were to give, if I were to buy Nathan a, a birthday present, um, say I bought him a, a, a CD. Uh, I know we don't use CDs anymore, but bear with me. I bought him a CD. And Nathan would say, oh, thank you very much, that's very kind. And he receives the CD. And then it's my birthday, and he thinks, oh, well, I'd better buy Simon a, a present as well. So he estimates the value of the CD I bought for him. And he goes out and spends $10 on a CD and buys one and gives one back to me. The point then is, are we actually exchanging gifts, or are we just trading with each other? Yep. The, the, the biggest, the, 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 the most false gift is the business lunch. <laughs> yeah, that ain't a gift. You always expect something in return. So the point then is, if you are only involved in in, in exchange, um, I is that a problem with the way that we gift to each other, or in the end, we is it all reducible to market economics, basically? And the reason it's not reducible to market economics is because gift exchange amongst human beings, at a deep, most deep level, involves the exchange of gifts that are not reducible to a monetary value, so they can't be measured in terms of each other. So the best example of this actually is my children opening their Christmas presents. So we could say that my wife and I go out and buy them a bike that we give to them on Christmas Day, and it's worth um, $150. What do our children have to give back to us in return? The answer is nothing. They have nothing that they've not already received from us, their parents their housing, their education, their clothing, etc. We don't yet send them out to work, yet, so they don't earn anything, so there's nothing they've got to give back to us. So how on earth could this be a gift exchange? What could they give to us, their parents? They open the present of the bike, they turn around and they smile, and the smile is the gift that they give back to us. But you cannot have a common monetary measure between bikes and smiles. But nevertheless, there's a reciprocity. Okay. So there's a there's a, a section from the uh, from Chronicles that we use in the Church of England at when we offer the gifts at the Eucharist. Um, Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the splendor, and the majesty. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. All things come from you and of your own do we give you. Everything is a gift from you, and we are now giving back what we have already received. Same is reflected in the beginning of the book of James. The, the creation is a gift of the, f every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow uh, due to change. So the idea is that everything that we have, our very being, is already gifted to us and yet we are called to offer it back to God, even though God needs nothing from us, and everything we're giving back we've already had from him. So that's a kind of gracious reciprocity, that, uh, and our returning our lives to God is absolutely fundamental to recognizing our lives as gifts, and therefore what they most truly are. So it seems to me that's the telos, actually, is ultimately to offer your life back to God as your free gift to him.
There we go. We'll finish with that. Thank you all for coming. Have a wonderful evening. Good night.